adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Sing it out. Thank you, Mike, and good evening, everyone. If you are new here or joining us for the first time, you may be surprised to notice that our normal preaching minister, Chris McCurley, is not here. Um, we don't let him leave very often, but when, when he does uh, take a short vacation, I get the opportunity to fill in on vacation. So my name is Blake Dozier, and I serve as the youth and family minister here. Have any of you ever experienced buyer's remorse? As someone who is prone to irrational and snap decisions, I've had my fair share of this. Usually buyer's remorse doesn't come from a small purchase like a candy bar. It comes from something big like a vehicle or a home. A year or so ago, we made the transition from my wife's dream car, a Toyota 4Runner, to what I affectionately call the swagger wagon which is a loose translation for minivan. I'm going to be the first to say that this did not give me a hint of buyer's remorse. It's awesome. I mean, seriously, the most awesome vehicle. that Automatic doors. You can haul eight people around. It can double as a pickup truck if you fold the seats down. It's like 21 miles a gallon. It has more bells and whistles than I could ever imagine. It's way more functional for getting car seats in and kids in and out. There's room for Brianna's stroller which happens to be the size of a small SUV, and groceries to fit in there at the same time. I mean, it is a serious vehicle meant for serious business. I was a convert from day one. Brianna, not so much. She had a serious case of buyer's remorse. In fact, I think about five minutes after getting it home, if she could have figured out a way to get it back to the lot and just beg the salesman to please give her her car back, she would have taken a serious financial loss to get rid of the minivan. Have you ever experienced that feeling? That sinking feeling where you wish you hadn't made the big purchase or made the big change or took the new job. The feeling you get when you step into the unknown. The, the feeling you get when you, when you panic. And you question all of the decisions that you've made. The true story that we're going to study tonight starts off with a similar feeling, though it doesn't end quite as well as my story. And I want you to remember this feeling as I take a few minutes to introduce our topic. Tonight we're going to read about King Saul and specifically how he spiraled out of control when he turned his back away from God and began to focus on himself. My lesson this evening is entitled, The Seed of Selfishness. You know, biblically, our faith has been compared to a seed quite often. We discuss the growth and the multiplication and the expansion and the, the fruitfulness of our faith under the direction of God. It's a really neat image to think about how something so tiny can grow into something strong that provides benefits to those around. 
But an equally biblical concept is the seed of selfishness. We don't talk about this as much, but this seed will also grow and multiply and expand and create fruit when watered. And the fruit of selfishness isn't quite so great to look at. King Saul provides us a powerful example of this principle in action, and his life should cause us to pause and evaluate our own. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to read from there in a moment, but first I'm going to get you caught up um, with what is happening in 1 Samuel. A lot of times I think as adults we don't go back to some of these Old Testament stories. I know as a father um, trying to retell these stories to a three-year-old sure makes you think about them differently. We treat them like they're children's stories, but they have some powerful messages that are tough to communicate to young people. And so, so today we're going to walk through some of these stories and get us up to speed. See, about ten chapters ago, in the eighth chapter of 1 Samuel, the elders of Israel got together and they approached the prophet Samuel with a request that would have a tremendous impact on God's people. They were looking at the nations around themselves and they insisted on being led by a king like everyone else was. Samuel could instantly see the foolishness of their request, but he went to God on their behalf, and and God told him to fulfill that request. So against Samuel's warnings, at their persistence and under the direction of God, King Saul was anointed as the first king over Israel. At first, Saul was pretty hesitant. He saw himself as a simple man. He was from the lowest family and the smallest tribe of Israel, and he certainly wasn't a leader. He certainly wasn't a high-powered warrior. He was a far cry from king material. In fact, his humility ran so deep that on the day that he was publicly put forward as king, they couldn't even find him because he was hiding in the baggage. I wish that I could say that Saul's watered the seed of humility. I wish I could say that he allowed it to persist into his role as king, but he didn't. Quickly, his humility turned to pride. As God granted him success on the battlefield, the nation of Israel began to rally around him more and more. And as his confidence grew, his confidence was misplaced. And instead of seeing this as the working of God, he began to see it as the working of his own. At this point, he began to slip. The first major slip in Saul's life occurred in Gilgal when the Philistines rallied themselves like they had never been seen before. I want you to imagine um, in 1 Samuel 13, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as numerous as the sand on the seashore is what the text tells us. And Saul looks out at these impossible odds and he turns around to see his 3,000 men that had now become 600. What a a discouraging place to be. Looking at this, he decides to take matters into his own hands, and instead of waiting on Samuel to offer a burnt offering as he had been commanded, he decided he didn't have time to wait. He couldn't lose any more warriors. He had to offer something now. His intentions were good, but his confidence was not in God. And his intentions led him to disobedience. Because of his disobedience, the prophet Samuel told him that his reign as king would not endure. The kingdom would be given to a man who we will later meet named David, who was a man after God's own heart. Saul's battles with the Philistines continue, and he's generally met with success. But as his heart turns away from God, further and further, he was bound to disobey again. So we see him later on being directed by God to annihilate the Amalekite nation. 
He was to spare no person or animal. And Saul again disobeys. He decides that instead of destroying everything like God said, he would bring back the best of the best for a sacrifice. Many of us can recall Samuel's rebuke to Saul on this occasion when he said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Again, in this instance, Saul was reminded of the result of his disobedience. The phrase Samuel used was, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he's given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Saul knew what was in store. He had witnessed the power of God. He should have known better than to bow up and fight against such a directive. But as Saul turned more inward, we eventually find him in a place where instead of fighting with God, he seems to be fighting against God. And you can imagine how successful that was. As Saul goes back to war and continues his battle with the Philistines, Samuel goes to Bethlehem and anoints a young shepherd and musician named David as the next king of Israel. This wasn't a public event, and it would be quite some time before David would assume that role, because first he was going to have to endure some horrible treatment at the hands of Saul. So we finally find ourselves one chapter before our starting point in the Valley of Elah. A great story. The Israelites were posted up on one side of the valley. The Philistines were posted up on the other side. And out comes a warrior named Goliath. He was nine feet tall. He had 155 pounds of armor. The head of his spear weighed over 18 pounds. He was a giant of a man. And for 40 days, across the valley, he taunted the Israelites. Send out your best warrior. Winner takes all. It was a harrowing sight, and the Israelites were afraid. You know, God had helped them overcome greater odds before. They had no need to fear, but in this moment, they weren't thinking about God. All they were thinking about was the giant. And their leader, Saul, he wasn't thinking about God. He was thinking about the giant. It's at this point that a young boy and shepherd named David shows up on the scene. When all anyone could talk about was Goliath, all David could talk about was God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the living God, David asked. And he put his money where his mouth was with no armor, no sword, no spear, no shield bearer, a shepherd boy with a staff, a sling, and five smooth stones. He charges across the valley, slings the stone into the giant's head, and we all know the end of the story. Goliath falls, and the Israelites take over the Philistines. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read, starting in verse 57. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. You remember that feeling of buyer's remorse? Saul was about to make a decision that he would forever regret that he could never back out of, and from this point forward, we see Saul spiral out of control. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 18, we read, Saul took him, that's David, that day, and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. 
And Saul sent him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This was the purchase. This was the honeymoon phase. This was the new car smell, the smell of fresh paint and carpet in the new house. Things were great. I mean, his son liked him. His servants liked him. He was being met with great success. Everything looked like it was going well until it wasn't. Because in verse 6 we read, And it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet the king Saul with tambourines and with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Hmm. Then Saul became very angry. For this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me, they've ascribed thousands? Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. As I've hinted throughout my account of Saul's reign, I don't think that this was the exact point that Saul's focus turned inward. I believe we see hints of it rearing its head from the very, very beginning of Saul's introduction. But this was a huge tipping point for Saul. And it's in this passage that we see a very clear window into Saul's heart. At this point, I can confidently say that Saul's heart could see nothing but himself. And here's an important truth that we are about to see played out this evening. A self-centered focus will always lead us down a path of destruction. Walk with me through the next few chapters and I'll show you. You see, right away, we begin with two accounts of attempted murder. In chapter 18, verse 10 through 11, Now when it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. After he fells at this, Saul removes him from his presence and sends him out to battle. I think there was an out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude here, but it didn't work. David's continued success only provoked Saul more, and and so Saul begins to plot his death. See, now he moves from an emotional response to one of his crazy episodes to deliberate plotting. In verse 17 we read, Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. David was deserving of this honor and position, but... He politely refuses. He says, who am I that I should be the king's son-in-law? Even this response doesn't stop Saul. He finds out that his daughter Michael loves David, and he tries this scheme again. This time he gives David a directive on how to earn it. Just kill 100 Philistines as dowry. David does that and more. He kills 200. He pays the dowry. More plotting, more failure. He continues to spiral out of control. Saul cannot shake this David character. So now instead of scheming, in chapter 19, he decides, I'll just order my underlings to kill him. 19 verse 1, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Jonathan is able to talk some reason into Saul, and we see a short-lived vow to change, um, but it was very short. And in verse 9 we see again 
Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul, and as he was sitting in his house with spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. At this point, we have to stop and admit one thing, and that's that Saul is a really bad aim with a spear. Just pause just a second and think about where Saul's self-centered focus has taken him. He has gone from a humble, God-fearing king to a disobedient, plotting, scheming murderer willing to use his own daughters as bait. But it gets worse. Saul sends messengers out to kill David again. When they're told he's sick and bedridden, Saul commands that they bring David up so he can kill him himself. He was willing to kill a bedridden man. And then as chapter 19 winds down, we see that David takes refuge with the prophet Samuel, and Saul sends men after him there. As the group of men approach, God's spirit comes on them, and they begin to prophesy so they don't carry out the task. He sends another group with the same result, and then a third group with the same result. And finally fed up with it, he goes himself, and guess what? The same result. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in a row, Saul ignores the direct intervention of God. As he reaches the bottom, we find Saul even willing to kill his own son because of his relationship with David. Chapter 20, verse 30 through 33 reads, Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. And finally, in chapter 22, we see the depth of Saul's depravity. As David fled from Saul, he was fed and armed by a man, a priest in Nob named Ahimelech. And listen what happens when Saul finds out about this interaction. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand is also with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands and attack the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Oh, the depths that our selfishness can take us to. From a humble king to a paranoid, lunatic, mass murderer. And not just a mass murderer, men, women, animals, priest of God at that. Selfishness will always take us to a place where we would never dream of going. A self-centered focus will always lead us down a path of destruction. But this was a special case, right? Saul was a special case. This was the Old Testament, and this was God's will. This was a part of his plan, right? Turn to Romans chapter 1, and look in verse 28. Here we read, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do those things which were not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It doesn't sound that different, does it? It sounds a lot like Saul. When he no longer saw fit to acknowledge God, we see where he ended up. And the picture that Paul paints here in Romans looks very similar. It sounds a lot like the world around us. The result of turning our back on God has been the same since the beginning. When the seed of selfishness is watered, God allows it to grow. You might ask why I would preach a sermon like this. Why would we talk about this? It's not very uplifting. In fact, it's kind of discouraging. And after all, you're here. You obviously don't wrestle with this. I preach this sermon because I see my selfish nature rearing its head every single day. Well, I'm not a mass murderer. Well, I don't think I would end up at the depths that Saul ended up. I see where my selfishness takes me. I see my selfishness in the words that I use. My selfishness in the choices that I make, in the thoughts that I think. I see my selfishness in my marriage and my selfishness as a parent, and I struggle to keep my focus on God and not on myself. I preach this sermon because I need to keep my priorities in check. And I preach this sermon so that I can share with you the good news. You see, Paul doesn't stop in Romans chapter 1. In Romans, we find Paul formulating an argument He begins it in chapter 1, and he kind of starts wrapping that argument up in chapter 3. So if you flip over a page and you start reading in verse 9, we see him quote from Psalm 14, a psalm of David. And it says this, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. In other words, this selfish gene is a universal human condition. Jews are under sin. Greeks are under sin. I'm under sin. You're under sin. We are not righteous. We do not understand. We do not seek God when left to our own volition. But we haven't been left on our own. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8 teaches us that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Let me translate. While you were acting like Saul, while you were spiraling out of control, while you were watering the seed of selfishness and sin, Christ was putting in a plan to rip that plant up by its roots and give you a salvation that you could never achieve on your own. And here was his plan. He says, when you attach yourself to me, When you turn away from yourself towards me, I will put to death the sin and selfishness that's inside of you. 
I will raise you up a new creature, and I will walk with you. I have defeated death on your behalf so that you don't have to. And together, we'll grow something new. Here's how Paul describes the process in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. A self-centered focus will always lead us down a path of destruction. A Christ-centered focus will lead us out of destruction into eternal life. 1 Peter 2.9 says that Christ calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Romans 7.24-25, Paul exclaims, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, our escape from self is through Jesus. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm asking you to be honest with yourself this evening. Where is your focus? Is it on God or is it on self? I encourage you this evening to set yourself aside because your life, your welfare, your happiness, but ultimately your eternal soul is at stake. There will be no buyer's remorse for that decision. If you need the prayers of the church, if you need to publicly repent or you would like to surrender yourself, Attach yourself to Christ through baptism and be raised a new creature. Then don't delay. Come forward as we stand and as we sing. Lord, make me a servant. Lord, make me like you. For you are.